Most people think the Bible starts with Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But really, it starts in Revelation 12. And it's fascinating. If you want to turn there, you're welcome to join me. Revelation 12, verse 7, it says, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceived the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Wow. First of all, like I said, most people think that the Bible starts with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. But before that, we're told that there was a war in heaven, which explains a great deal of why there's so much evil and, and problems in this world. The Bible pulls back the curtain and basically says God and you and I have enemies. So if you want to understand, you know, both what's going on in your life, what's going on in the world, the news, you know, that's happening daily in front of us, riots, pandemics, famines, wars, you know, all these things, you really can't understand any of that until you understand that behind all of this is the fact that we're in a war zone. So we're going to look at um, history starting, again, not with Genesis 1-1, but what will happen before that. And there's not a lot that we're told, but we're told enough to make it very clear that, again, that there's an enemy involved with this whole thing. So when that verse starts off, and there was war in heaven, Man, what a loaded phrase, war in heaven. What was that all about? Well, apparently it was not a physical war. It was, or not, at least if it was, it definitely wasn't just a physical war because it was definitely words, intrigue, and a power struggle. The Bible makes that part very clear. And that's where we're going to begin if we want to understand world history. So, That verse continues on again, that Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon fought with his angels. So wait, what? Michael who? Fought against a dragon? What dragon? (laughs) But the cool thing is the Bible will, and this is the first thing you should learn about the Bible, it will always explain itself. You don't got to rely on anybody else. You don't even have to rely on me. It will explain itself sometimes in the same chapter or passage other times in a different book of the Bible. But as long as you don't read with preconceived ideas, just just pray that God will explain it to you because that's what God said he gave the Holy Spirit to do, explain things to you, then you'll come away with a clear picture. As time goes on, it will build a little bit here and a little bit there and it will become um, clear. So although we don't have time to pursue in this episode who Michael is exactly, um, it, it really, it, the point is that there was a war that was fought and there was two sides and we will find out who that dragon is next. So in 12.8, it said, and and they prevailed not, neither was their place found anymore in heaven. So basically they were kicked out. And then in verse nine, it says the great dragon was cast out that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So 
There we go, right there. The dragon and serpent are explained. The Bible says that those two terms, the dragon and the serpent, are another other terms used for the devil or Satan. So it explains it all by itself. So like I said, sometimes there's nearby verses like this. Other times you may have to hunt a little bit, but um, that's the cool thing about marginal references. If you don't have a Bible with marginal references, like I've got them, um, a center column right down the middle um, with these references, and you'll see little A's and B's and whatnot. And um, next to, like in the middle of a verse, it'll say, um, uh, well, like for example, in my Bible in verse 7, um, there's an A to to give you an idea who Michael is. There's a B that will take you to references about the dragon. Um, it'll just go on like this, explaining. And those are some of the yummiest pursuits um, is to follow some of those uh, you know, passages and, and look where else the Bible talks about that particular topic. It, you, you can get lost with fun doing that. So make sure you get a good Bible. I recommend the New King James it's easy to read, but it has the accuracy of the, the King James. It doesn't take too much liberties. And, and, and you know, the, no, all Bibles are, are the best interpretation that they can do of the um, original. But I think to just stick into something like that's a good idea. So anyway, so this passage brings up a really good question. So there actually is a real devil. I mean, what are we talking red you know, suit and pitchfork and all that, you know, 50% of Americans, if you look at the polls, don't believe that there's a devil. And if they do, they think, like I said, there's some kind of red being with a pinch, pitchfork antagonizing his subjects in hell. But that's not what the Bible says. So it's very, very interesting what the, what the Bible says that Satan is doing and his angels. And one passage that refers to that is 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14, and so if you want to turn there, it will give you um, a phrase that it uses called uh, saying that he's an angel of light. And I think that that's a really important, um, you know, uh, thing to key in on because he's not, like I said, some horrible, ugly being that would, you know, scare you half to death if you saw him. Yeah, they could manifest themselves like that, but that's not what the Bible says it's, his tactic often is because he's got tactics. Oh, he's got a million different tactics to, to, to you know, reach each person and, and confuse them and take them away from God. So 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen says, And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness according to whose end will be according to their works. So this is a passage where Paul is warning people about false apostles, false teachers, and helping people to understand, look, just because they call themselves a minister of righteousness doesn't mean they are. So he's saying Satan himself transforms himself into angel of light. Well, what's he referring to? Well, he didn't appear in some hideous form when he um, uh, tempted Jesus, when Jesus was in the wilderness. So we can go into that passage at another time, but it wasn't obvious that this was, um, you know, some scary Satan devil that was, you know, tempting Jesus. He appeared, obviously, as a beautiful angel of light. And he, Paul is warning here, 
there are people, ministers here on earth that will preach, but they're preaching a false gospel. So basically, this is a warning that a seemingly godly man could be preaching a false gospel. So if he's not torturing people in hell, the first answer to this question of what he's doing, he's preaching. And that is a sobering thought. So we'll continue a little bit more on this um, in the next episode. What else is Satan and his angels doing since the Bible is very clear that a third of the angels fell? All right, join me next time. Welcome. We're going to have another fun episode tonight, and this is World History Number 1, Part 2. Last time we talked about, um, it was called, And There Was War in Heaven, and we saw that there is definitely things going on behind the scenes that we don't see and we aren't aware of unless you look in the Bible and let it pull back the curtain. So tonight, we're going to look into another uh, facet of that, and we're going to look at why do bad things happen and kind of flesh that out a little bit more. And if you have your Bible with you, we are going to go to Job 1. That is just before um, Psalms, which is basically in the middle of the Bible. But Job is really uh, a book that takes place very shortly post-flood. And I say that it had to have been probably in the first, you know, two, three, four centuries because um, he has four, or, I'm sorry, 10 adult children, and then um, they die, and, you know, he ends up getting to see several generations beyond that. And so you know that he is um, one of those long-lived ones with the first few hundred years after the flood. They lived several hundred years. So it's something that happened very soon post-flood, even though it's a book that's halfway through the Bible. So that's a little background. So Job 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 5 and then 13 through 22. And we'll do it in that order for a reason. So verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and ten daughters were born to him. Also, his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was, when the days of feasting had run their course, that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Okay, so before we go on to verse 13, you know, this obviously sets the stage for who Job is. You know, what I'm sure that he probably didn't have exactly 7,000 sheep or exactly 3,000 camels. That maybe it's probably just a rounded number, but it's giving you a good idea of this guy's got a lot, you know, of wealth. He's honest and upright, serves God. Um, as conscientiously as he can, you know, loves God. And um, he does this regularly, this uh, doing burnt offerings for his children to make sure that they, you know, are safe, that they haven't, you know, sinned against God. 
Now, one thing I just want to point out, and it's going to become, you know, part of a, a theme that you're going to see uh, as we go through a lot of these different passages in the Bible. These these burnt offerings, the sacrificial system, was not given for the first time at Mount Sinai to the Jews. It was given way before that. It was re-given at Mount Sinai because they had lost it after being, you know, 400 years in, in Egypt, you know, mixed in with heathen. And they were in a pagan darkness. They'd lost a lot of their knowledge of God, and God had to reiterate the Ten Commandments and the, the sacrificial system. But there's lots of evidence that, um, and examples that the Bible from the Bible that everyone had this system, um, not only before Mount Sinai, but even pre-flood. And we'll get into that at some other point. But I just want you to start seeing this same picture that God's always had one agenda— save as many people as he can, could. And the sacrificial system was never about, you know, pleasing God and, and bringing these sacrifices so you're going to appease him. It was to reflect. It was so that we would understand the magnitude of the sacrifice he was giving us. And every time we brought one of these sacrifices, a burnt offering or any of the sacrificial offerings, we would see a reflection of his gift to us. And from the beginning, that's all he was ever trying to do, save as many people as possible. So let's skip to verse 13. And it says, Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabaeans raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Another traumatized story here. Um, and while that guy was telling that horrible tale, he's, verse 17, while he was still speaking, another also came and said, the Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels, took them away, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Well, if that wasn't enough, verse 18 continues. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Can you imagine the sinking feeling going through Job at this point? The horror going through his face as his mind realized where this is going. Verse 19, and suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people and they are dead and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe and shaved his head and he fell to the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked have I come from my mother's womb and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Wow, one thing after another. I mean, you talk about life going along easy, happy, everything you could ask for. And then in this short little period of time, every last facet of your life is turned on end, and you are wiped clean. You've lost everything financially. You've lost all your children. You're heartbroken. You're financially broke. It's it's just, it's staggering. And yet Job's response, first of all, is amazing. Um, that he didn't sin. He didn't accuse God. He didn't 
shift his, you know, put his face up in the, you know, his fist up in the face of God and, and say, how dare you? I don't like this. Not that God can't handle that. He understands when we, you know, feel these things. But Job, he was beyond that. He understood that, you know, we, we, we get good, bad things happen. It's not God's fault. I'm not going to blame this on him. I'm just going to worship. I'm just going to stay focused on him. So if you had only those two sections to go through, and this happened to your friend, to you or your friend, what would you think? I mean, this is like beyond really horrible luck. I think the first thought would be, dude, is God mad at you? I mean, seriously, the first thing that most people do is blame God when something bad happens. But this fascinating thing is we have verses 6 through 12. And this is so precious because God pulls back the curtain. This is such an important passage. And, and God put it in there for a reason. Again, it's very important that this, you take note that this is not very long post-flood. In other words, right after the flood, when the people are apostatizing and, and losing the knowledge of God rapidly. I mean, it's amazing what happened post-flood. And we'll get into that in other presentations, how fast and how many apostatized. But in that time of darkness where everybody's going downhill really fast and, and, and the whole world's getting off course all over again, God wants to make sure people understand that there's a controversy between good and evil. Bad things happen I want to pull back that curtain and help you understand who I am. And I'm not the one that's against you. You have an enemy. I'm the one that's for you. That's what he's trying to do. So he wants people to learn very on who's early, you know, who's really to blame. And you know what? People have never gotten that lesson straight. In Christ's time, hundreds of centuries later, a couple of thousand years basically later, he's still trying to cure people of that idea. There's many examples. I'll give you the you know one most common. Um, you know the disciples asked, "Master, who was who sinned that this man was born blind?" In other words, the problem that most people have is who really is God? Is he as good and fair, faithful, reliable, and loving as I need him to be? Because really deep down, you know, I think a lot of people say, "Oh yeah, God loves me. God loves me. God loves me. God loves you." Yep, happy, happy. But you know what? When things start going bad in their lives and they can't make their mortgage payment or, you know, your friends all seem against you or you lose your job, all of a sudden you start really questioning who God is and whether he loves you and where he is and all this stuff. Well, these stories preciously offer us the behind the scenes of what's going on. And God's trying to say, it's not, it's not me. There's more things at play here than what you're seeing. So um, many of us won't have this opportunity to get the curtain pulled back the way Job did. But this, if, if the only curtain we ever have pulled back is Job's curtain, where we see that in his life what was really going on behind the scenes, that is enough for us to stake our faith, take that deep breath, settle back into God and say, all right, I don't understand this. I don't like it. But I know you're there for me, and I'm going to trust you through this. So let's um, let's go to uh, let's go to Job 
Yeah, let's see. I don't know if we've got time to really cover this. It's kind of um, getting long already here. Let's stop here for now and we'll, we'll start up again in the next session and we'll continue this, th this thought. I want to keep these to about 10 minutes so that you can easily have some time to study um, for a few minutes each day and dig into it, you know, with your Bible in front of you, you know, pray and think about, you know, the different things in your life that you're, you've struggled with in the past that you maybe blamed God with, or think about how you'd be able to share this with somebody else, you know, point them to these verses and, you know, help them through a situation that they're going through. So I guess that's it for now. Join us for um, the next section. All right, so let's continue tonight with the section that we didn't get time to read last time, which is Job 1, verses 6 through 12. Again, this series is, you know, delving into the great controversy between good and evil that's happening behind the scenes that we don't know about, which started with a war in heaven. And what we're seeing here is an event that took place after the flood, sometime in the first few hundred years after the flood. And... Uh, you can learn more about that in the previous segments, how we know that. But again, in a time of uh, deep apostasy where people were really losing the knowledge of God rapidly after the flood, uh, God gives this, he makes sure that this story, this event that took place, he makes sure it ends up in the Bible so that you have um, a way to see behind the scenes so that when you have things that are going wrong, horrible things that are happening in your life, or just depressed and struggling and feeling friendless and, and struggling financially, you've, you've got answers to why some of these things happen to us. Um, so we read verses 1 through 5 and 13 through 22, which show what happened to Job um, with him having all his camels and donkeys and sheep and all those things taken away, destroyed, um, and his 10 children, uh, you know, were killed. And so horrible things happening to him. And this is normally all we get to see in our life. The bad things that happen, we, we, don't, we don't get to see behind the scenes normally. But God gave verses 6 through uh, 12. And this is what I meant that was so precious that um, God fills in that picture so that we have this to anchor our faith on. So verse 6, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So, well, I'll stop right there just for a second. And, and, and so this is, uh, you know, a scene in heaven um, where Satan is still allowed to come in and appear before the presence of God. He's been kicked out. You can tell that by the following passage, but he's he's meddling. He's just meddling with God's people and with God's agenda on earth. And verse seven continues, and the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come from? Now, God knows where, <laughs> where Satan has been and what he's doing. A lot of times you'll find that the Bible um, says things like this. God will say it so that we get to hear the for our own benefit what people, or in this case, you know, an angel, will say when we're asked. Now, in this case, it's just a very simple answer, but there are times when a human being will answer and it will really reveal what they're thinking and feeling in their heart. So, um, you know, God says, 
you know, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answers the Lord and said, does Job fear you for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. You can just hear the resentment and the hatred. In verse 12, it says, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And then it goes in verse 13 to what we'd already read. Again, if we didn't have that section 6 through 12, where we realize that, you know, there's that Satan is the one that is challenging God and, and wants to wants to hurt, you know, Job wants to see what will happen if, if, if uh, Job's allowed to suffer. If we didn't have this, all we'd have is 1 through 5 and 13 through 22, where, bam, out of the blue, Job loses everything, including his sons and daughters. So, behind the scenes, awesome, um, you know, help for us to, to see this. So, let's skip over to chapter 2. And since we've already read in a previous section, um, 13 through 22. So, Satan has done all these things, and now he's coming back around again. Verse 1, again, there was a day when the sons of God, and sons of God, there's a big confusion out there for, you know, people get, there's, it gets wacky. Let me tell you, it gets really wacky. But there's a very simple thing. The Bible is very clear that the sons of God can sometimes refer to angels and sometimes refer to God's people those that are faithful to God. And there's multiple verses that show that it means, you know, both depending on the situation. Well, this in this case means, um, you know, the, because God, all of us are considered part of the family of God, both us humans and both the angels um, in heaven. And so we're all in one sense, sons of God, those that are worshiping him. But in this case, there was a day when the sons of God, so the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the, the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil, and still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. And I, I want to stop right there just for a second. Um, you know, it's it's very interesting that God takes ownership. You'll see this all um, multiple times in the Bible that God will take ownership of things that even Satan does, because in the end. And people have rightly brought this up that, well, even if Satan's the one doing it, God could have stopped him. You know, why did my child die? Why did my husband get cancer? Why did whatever? You know, if I were God, I wouldn't, you know, allow these things to happen. So God does take ownership of the fact that he did allow this. And 
when you see the Bible in its entirety and all of the bad and difficult passages, in the end, you'll come to the conclusion that he was faithful and he was there's a reason why he was allowing these things to happen because it slowly unfolds through the, through the centuries who he is and who Satan is. If we never had these opportunities to see what Satan's willing to do, what he wants to do when God pulls back his protective hand, we would just live in these happy little blissful bubbles, completely ignorant of the fact that there's, you know, Satan and you know, a controversy between good and evil. And the questions would never get answered, both in our minds and in the angels' minds, as to why all these beings are destroyed in the end. If we went happy, happy, happy until, you know, we die and then we get to the second coming and, you know, and in the, you know, eternity we see, you know, beings that were destroyed because of supposedly, you know, bad things that they'd done, um, these angels and, you know, human beings that turned away from God, we wouldn't understand what the heck is going on. But when you see what, when people are allowed to suffer, you'll see what's in their hearts. And in this case, you know, we already saw at the end of chapter one that, that Job, when he, when his glass is, you know, is jiggled and his world is rocked. He said, naked I came from the mother's, my mother's room, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He didn't sin in saying all that stuff. A lot of people, when when Satan takes a swipe at them, you find out what's really in their heart and they start cursing God and how dare you, you have no right, and, and they turn away from him. And it's, it's again, it's, it's mercy for us to be allowed to see what was really in people's hearts because someday when the final destruction takes place of angels and human beings, we'll know and we'll have experience, okay, I get it. I, I see what's going on. I understand, you know, that someone may look honest and someone may look kind and someone may look faithful, but you know what was really in their heart? And, and that, again, you only see when, when things really go rotten in our lives. So, sorry for the long detour, but um, I think it's important to note that God does take ownership of the fact that he allows these things to happen, but it really is Satan the one, is the one that's doing them. So, verse 4, So Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, you can just hear this resentment, yeah, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. and He will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. This wasn't no half measure. This wasn't a few pimples here and there. Boils are very painful. And this guy had him from the bottom of his feet, the top of his head. I mean, this guy's in agony. In verse 8, and he took for himself a potsherd, so like a broken piece of pottery, with which to scrape himself. Because again, it's like, a, you know, it bubbles up. It's um, pus in there. It's it's just very painful. And he, he took the potsherd with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the of the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. 
good grief. Talk about a helpmeet. This woman is not a helpmeet. Where's the encouragement? Where's the comfort? I mean, this is, if you want an example of how not to be as a spouse, well, this one ranks right up there. Verse 10, but he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speak. Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now again, God keeps saying, this is, this is what it looks like when somebody handles difficulty in a, in a proper way. He doesn't blame God. He doesn't, you know, sinfully, um, you know, go saying all these accusations against God. And again, like I said before, God's big. He can handle it if you, you know, lose it and you, you know, start, you know, emotionally beating your fist in the air against, you know, him and what he's allowing to happen. But we don't need to do that because we understand that he's not the one doing this. So, you know, verse 11 through 13, basically Job's friends um, show up to mourn and comfort with him. And they took one look at him in verse 12. They raised their eyes from the from afar, and they didn't even recognize him. They lifted their voices and wept, and each one tore his robe and spink, sprinkled dust on his head towards heaven. So they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great. So, again, um, some really important things to notice is Again, God took ownership of what he could have stopped, even though Satan was the one that did it. And also, very importantly, this Satan struck Job with severe health problems. So we've got quite a picture so far. If you go through all chapter 1 and chapter 2, you've got, um, you know, wind that came and destroyed the house, uh, fire that came down out of heaven, um, you know, bad things happening by people coming and stealing his his goods. Now you've got health um, issues taking place. So what looks like, again, on the surface, like just really horrible luck and, and just circumstance, natural things happening are not. These are things Satan is capable of doing and allowed to do. That's a very important point. Does that mean that all natural disasters and health problems are from Satan? No, I I wouldn't say that, you know, because I I would assume that some storms and and some weather patterns, um, you know, are just things that happen because we do know that with health, for example, often we bring things on ourselves by the horrible diets we choose, no exercise, high stress levels, lack of sleep, and then we blame it all on God. So the point is that there are so many verses in the Bible that comfort us with the fact that no matter what we go through, whether it's from Satan, whether it's God teaching us a lesson, and this is not a case where God's teaching us a lesson, you know, just trying to straighten up Job. But there are times when um, he does uh, rebuke or chasten us um, or allow us to reap the consequences of our choices in order to help us to steer us back into the path of truth. Um, but whether it's Satan or you know God teaching us a lesson or whether it's our own stupidity or rebellion, there's so many stories, so many verses in the Bible that, that show God's got this. He's got this. He understands it. He knows exactly what's going on in your little corner of this 
entire planet in this galaxy in this universe he's very aware of your needs and he is there to provide you with everything that you could ask for um, during this crisis so we will see more how this plays itself out again this is um, trying to keep this to 10 to 15 minute segments so you can have some study time digest these things pause it and then um, you know go on and we'll study a little bit more um, from this presentation in the next episode okay great i will talk to you soon so in our next segment i want to jump to job four we've seen in job chapter one and two that we've got a really rich um you know set up here as far as seeing behind the scenes of what's going on but job four has a really important piece that's uh starting in in verse 12 Now a word was secretly brought to me, and my ear received a whisper of it. In disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night, when deep sleep falls upon men, fear came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. Then a spirit passed before my face. The hair on my body stood up and stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice saying, Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? If he puts no trust in his servants and he charges his angels with error, how much more are those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed before a moth? This is such an interesting passage. Now, there's a lot of things we could, you know, say about this, but this again brings up the one of the types of experiences that people often have in this world they sense something there there's a spirit maybe in their room or um haunting of houses and stuff like this and people don't understand where they where these things come from and they think that it's dead people or you know things like that but the bible's very clear that satan and his angels are doing things like this clearly um, he is trying to uh, he's trying to attack job's faith and he's doing it when basically he's emotionally physically um, he's spent he doesn't have his resources are low and that's when satan's lies are most successful when we're hurting and we're tired and we're weak and we're um, run down we're sick uh, lonely feeling like we have no friends, we've been ridiculed, can't make our mortgage payments, all the different things that we're struggling with, that's when Satan, and and he isn't going to necessarily let you sense his presence like this here did. In in this situation, Job, the hair on on his body stood up. He he could discern its, its presence, but not its appearance. He couldn't tell exactly what it looked like, but he was very clear that there was another being in this room with him. And so, again, we may not necessarily sense his presence, but, but Satan does the same types of things as what he did here. He tries to basically say, um, you know, to Job, you know, he didn't trust us. He accused us angels of doing wrong. He kicked us out of heaven. Who are you to think that you, uh, you know, are going to be acceptable to God in any way, shape, or form? Whatever he can do to to get in there and weaken your hold on God 
and make you feel like, oh, maybe God doesn't love me. I mean, maybe, maybe I do deserve this. Maybe, you know, I did something wrong and he's angry with me. Whatever he can do to tailor a lie to sneak in there and break your hold on God and your trust in, in, in God, that's what he's going to do. That's why we need to be on guard all the time, but especially when we're struggling. Because make no mistake, he means to destroy you or your faith. You physically, wipe you out of existence if he could, or to destroy your faith. So is there just the devil? Is there just, I mean, how many of these things are there? Well, you know, Revelation um, makes it clear that a third of the angels fell. But we don't know how many that is. We don't know how many there were originally, so we can only say a third of them fell. Well, can we get an idea maybe? Um, So we're going to look at Mark 5, verses 2 through 9. And this really starts fleshing out the picture um, in another way. So this is a, the, the section is labeled a demon-possessed man healed. So Mark 5, verses 1, we're going to actually really do 2 through 9. Because this verse 1 basically says where, where they are. So verse 2, and when he had come, meaning Jesus, had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, nor not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him and cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by the God, by God, that you do not torment me. And he said to him, meaning Jesus said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. So he commands him. Then he asked him, again, Jesus knows, but he's asking for our benefit. Then he asked him, what is your name? And he answered saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, Legion is several thousand. So there are several thousand demons in this guy, in one guy, several thousand. So if Satan can spare several thousand for just one person, he apparently has plenty of them. Now, before you go freaking out and, and worrying and stuff, remember, Satan is a created being. He does not have any power that God does not grant him. And God is more powerful than him. And God says over and over and over through scripture that he is there for us in every single way you could possibly need. So you don't have to worry about um, Satan just coming and taking his angels and just like possessing you. We have to open the door for him to, to and allow him into our lives. And we do that in various ways. Maybe we watch um, bad movies Um, maybe we tolerate sin in our lives, something that you know God's been talking to you about, but you're not willing to to give up. 
Um, maybe you are attending seances and, and involving yourself with Ouija boards or you're, you know, just, again, there's a lot of different ways, um, you know, bad music, um, just even getting into Satan worship or playing with the occult. There's a lot of different ways that we open ourselves up to Satan. Um, But if we say to God, I need you, I want you, I don't even know how to protect myself. I'll read your word. I'll, I'll try to learn about this, but I'm clueless. You're God. I need you to be God. He is more than happy to be God. A lot of our biggest problems are we don't let him be God to us. And so we run around trying to protect ourselves and figure this all out. He's got this. He'll protect you. Ask him to lead you into paths of righteousness, um, which Psalms uh, 23 makes it clear that he wants to do. He wants to lead us beside still waters and green pastures. Um, He wants to give you a luxurious, rich Christian experience. And He's capable of doing that if you will just trust him to do that. So anyway, um, back to this section. The other important thing that is that notice that he's he's in the mountains day and night, crying, cutting himself. You know, people nowadays. You know, uh, one thing that people are prone to do is is cutting. Um, slashing their arms and and there's in so much emotional pain that that physical pain is the only thing that can distract them from their emotional pain so you would think that something from the 20th century or 21st century you know that um, you would think the bible doesn't help me with with things that I'm dealing with like cutting or anxiety or fear and depression and you know but he's he has something in his word for every single situation that we deal with. And so um, in this case, he knows how to free you from that. And if you continue, um, and we won't go through this whole section right now because, again, we're just addressing what, what does Satan, lead, Satan typically do in his attacks on human beings. But if you read the rest of that section... It's stunning. It's just, it's beautiful. Um, he just casts them out. He just frees the guy completely and puts him in his right mind. And he's exactly able to do that for you, to place you in your right mind. Doesn't mean you have to be demon possessed or that you're, that there's something freaky, weird with you, you know, because you've been struggling with cutting. I don't know whether, you know, someone's demon possessed just because they're cutting. It doesn't matter. Don't let that be some kind of um, negative self-talk or like, what's wrong with me? And, you know, just, just look at the point of the story. He's got this. The point is he can do for you what you need him to do, free you from physical and emotional and spiritual issues. So, um Let's stop there for now, and again, really dig into these sections. Don't just you know stop with what I've said. Dwell on them, and always look for his faithfulness. Look at the passage. Read it from different viewpoints. Read it, you know, one time maybe noticing um, 
you know, the people's reactions or what, what it's look, what it looks like to be watching Jesus do this. Another time, look at his intentions, his motives. He's always trying to free people, heal people, save people, love people. Um, you know, look for his motive, you know, in, in all of these things. So dig into these passages and then we will come back for another episode. All right, to finish off this uh, first presentation um, in our sweep through history from a biblical standpoint, I want to review a few of the things that um, Satan is doing, what we've discovered so far, Satan and his angels, that is. So back, you know, in the beginning, we looked at 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, and remember it says, and no wonder for Satan himself, trans- for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. So he's capable of looking pretty, um, coming in forms you're not aware of. He just, he is, he's capable of mimicking what people look like. Um, we see the angels in the Bible are capable of coming in human form. Um, so there's a lot of different, uh, things involved with this, uh, with this verse. You're, you're basically seeing that he's got quite a, a bit of latitude to be able to to disguise himself and come to us in ways that we're not even thinking he's coming to us in, like he did to Adam and Eve, right? Well, to Eve in the Garden of Eden, where he inhabited a snake and, um, you know, deceived her um, at that point. If you back up to Second Corinthians eleven four. It says, for he who comes preaching another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. You'd have to read it in context to to get the full meaning of the passage. But basically, people can be preaching a different version of Jesus, um, like saying he's not God, that he's, um, he's like a God, or... I don't know, there's some really wacky ideas, but Jesus is fully God. And we see from this verse that there's, um, you know, different spirits behind some of these things. There's different gospels that are incorrect, that have, you know, false ideas mixed in. Um, That's why your safety is in the Bible. Don't take anyone's word for it, not even my word for it. God's faithfully going to teach you. You just come to the Bible um, you know, praying that he leads you, never study the Bible, just in your own wisdom, your own strength. Always pray, Lord, explain this to me. Make sure I get the right understanding of this passage. And he'll do that. I promise you he is faithful to do that. So we also saw Job 1, 14 through 19, um, that, you know, killing people or hurting. Um, Job 1, 19, we saw it causing natural disasters. Uh, Job 4, 15 through 19, depression or not measuring up. Um, you know, anxiety, dis- you know, discouraging Job. Mark 5, 5, we saw emotional trauma uh, or cutting. Um, there's many more things that we could go into, but for now that at least gives you an idea of what Satan and his angels are doing. Um, we'll cover more of that in other presentations, but um, there's one final thing that we just have to hit on, and it is awesome. We can't possibly, 
discuss all the things that Satan does without ending on what God does. This is one of my favorite passages. So if you go to 2 Kings, it's in the Old Testament. Um, It's kind of maybe a third of the way through the Bible. Just flip through and you'll find it. 2 Kings 6. And we're looking at um, kind of verses 8 onwards, in particular 14 through 17. But starting in verse 8, you really what's happening is it, it says, Now the king of Syria was making war against Israel, and he consulted with his servants, saying, My camp will be in such and such a place. And what was happening is whenever um, you know the king would, would say anything, um, it goes on to, over the next few verses to show that um, God would tell that privately um, to Elisha the prophet, and Elisha would send to the king of Israel and say, "Oh, you know, be careful! Don't go here, or don't do this, because the king of Syria is going to get you there. He's going to, he's, you know, attack you there." And the king of Syria, the enemy of Israel, is getting really frustrated and going, "What the heck's going on? Who's snitching?" Because he, he pulls all his, you know, household and his staff together and says, "Like, who's snitching?" And one of the servants says, "It's not us. We're not doing it." Um, it's it's uh, Elijah the prophet. Somehow he must have had a friend of a friend. Who knows? But somehow he knew what you know what was happening. So King Assyria said, "All right, we're going to get him, and we're going to get rid of him because this can't continue." Basically, so verse fourteen, the king of Syria, this enemy, sends horses and chariots and on a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city, and when the servant of of the man of God. So this is Elijah's servant. Elijah the prophet has a servant, you know, um, that's with him, traveling with him, helping him out, you know. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, he goes out on the balcony, and there's an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant says to Elijah, alas, my master, what shall we do? I mean, sheer panic. The guy is panicking. And in verse 16, Elijah says to him, do not fear, for those that are with us are more than those who are with them. And right about then, you know, the servant's probably thinking, uh, I don't see anybody. I see just the two of us and a whole lot of them. And Elijah prays in verse 17 and says, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. I mean, this is a cool story, and it goes on, but I won't read it all to you now. The point is, just as clearly as the Bible reveals Satan and his relentless attacks on the human race, the Bible just as clearly shows that God is relentlessly protecting and has watch care over us that we're not aware of. Now, Elijah, because of how close he was to God, he lived obviously in in a, the more, a more spiritual realm. And he saw, at least at times, he saw clearly, you know, what no one else could see. You know, his servant couldn't see, you know, up on some kind of mountain ridge, some, somewhere up there was in the sky, was chariots and, and horses of fire. Boy, that must have been stunning. I, I just, I love the, the imagery. You know, but, but Elijah saw this stuff, but, it, you know, we that live in the normal realm, we don't get to see that stuff very often. You know, sometimes, 
God will show us an angel, you know, show us how we were saved by one. Um, but most times we don't get to see that. But it doesn't mean it's not there. It doesn't mean he's not protecting us. It's awesome. Behind every difficulty that you're in is weapons of warfare that are mighty in power to save you. So just because you can't see, you know, that, that God's faithfully there to protect you, know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is. But there's a verse in Matthew that says, and he did not many mighty and he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. There was a city that um, the Bible's saying that Jesus wasn't able to do a lot of um, healings and miracles in that city because of their unbelief. Don't be the person that blocks God's power. Don't wallow in, you know, in your difficulties, going, "Oh, what am I going to do?" I don't, you know. There was this guy that taught me how to pray years ago, and I'll be forever grateful for what he said. He said, don't come whining and slobbering to God going, oh, please help me. This is this, you know, and magnifying the difficulty of our problem and thinking my husband's never going to change. My boss is never going to change. My financial situation is never going to change. I'm never going to have any friends. I'm not going to ever succeed in life, whatever it is. Don't come whining and groveling to God in defeat. Come to God, rehearsing his faithfulness. Look for those examples all through scripture. Track them. Take note of them. Write them down. Memorize them. Reread them. Put them in your own words. Put them on, um, on, on three by fives and, and keep them with you. Keep this stuff before your mind and heart so that when you have a difficult situation, you come to God and you say, you were faithful here, you were faithful there, you were faithful to this guy, you were faithful to that guy, you were faithful to me years ago, you were faithful to me last week, now I've got another problem. And you don't have to worry about coming too many times. He loves it. He loves nothing more than when you press past blessings as a reason for greater blessings. He loves it. And I'm going to prove that to you in some of the um, other presentations. But for right now, just take my word for it. He loves nothing more than when you press past blessings as a reason for greater blessings. You come and just say, you did this and this and this. Will you do this? And you will see the answer. He loves that. All right. For now, that's our first um, of at least 52 Uh, presentations on world history from a biblical standpoint. We can now, you know, get into Genesis, um, but we had to, we really needed to to address what the Bible says happened before God created this world, because there was, there were other beings, other worlds, there's a family that God had, there was a war, there, um, and by family, I don't mean like literal kids or something, I'm talking about, you know, being part of the, quote, family of God. So anyway, that's um, a little bit of the the behind the scenes, and we'll get into more as we go forward. Okay, enjoy, tell your friends, and uh, we'll delve into some more fun stuff soon.